I Read Comics, Episode 2. Yes, it's another comics podcast, and the big difference is, I'm doing it, and I'm a girl. That's right, a girl that reads comics. My name is Lena Taylor, and I read comics. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in to my podcast. I wanted to say first off that the beautiful music that begins and ends the program is by the fabulous composing diva over at the Lincoln Heights Literary Society, Ginger Mayerson. The first piece is called Trio 2, and I think they're beautiful arrangements, they're beautifully played. She was explaining to me just the other day that in fact they were played in a very noisy room, not a good room for performing, but the uh, artists all did a wonderful job on it. And that's why I selected those pieces to begin and end the show. And also because they're really classy sounding, which I think is something good to have on a show that's basically about comic books and gay porn. So, you know, it classes it up a little bit. I have a couple of things I want to talk about on this week's podcast, and to start off, I want to continue something that I had started last week, which was talking about the Marvel uh, Chronicles of Conan, and I got Volume 2 in the mail, finally, and I went through it, and it's great, except that, as I had read online in so many places, the color is totally fucked up on a couple of these stories, and it's especially fucked up on Rogues in the House, which is one of the best things in here. There are some panels where it is just awful and muddy, and I'm really annoyed with it, and I can't believe they did such a crappy job of it. In most of the other stories, it's okay. It doesn't bother you. It could be better, but Rogues in the House, man, oh, it just doesn't look very good. So, great stories. Uh, those Rogues in the House was adapted from an actual Robert E. Howard Conan story, and it is really cool. It's a great story. Too bad about the color, though. And in each of these books, there's a, a epilogue or some behind-the-scenes stuff by Roy Thomas, who did the script writing for it. And as I was reading through it, he was talking about what they had to do to change some one of the stories. So at the very end of this book, there's a story called The Frost Giant's Daughter, which had actually appeared in black and white in Savage Sword of Conan, which was a magazine-size publication. Um, and Barry Smith drew that story, too. And I remember it really well, because it's a great, great story. And um, in looking at it, I noticed there were some differences in the color and the text. And he explained that they had to do a little bit of revisiting when it was published in a Conan comic book because of the comics code. And I went, oh, yeah, the comics code. I remember the comics code. Whatever happened to that? And I had to go look it up. So for people who are... Uh, under 30, you probably don't have any idea of what the comics code was. Um, turns out that the comics code, code still exists, but it doesn't really mean anything anymore. So uh, in order to educate the masses, I thought I'd give a little bit of history. And most of this is lifted directly from Wikipedia, because Wikipedia has everything. So the Comics Code Authority, CCA, was founded in 1954 and it acted as a censor on comic books, much in the same way that the Hayes Code 
um, acted as censorship on movies starting in the 1930s. And this was because in the 50s, the very repressive decade that it was, there was a lot of public outcry against um, what was seen as really corrupting influences of comic books because there were horror comic books and crime comic books. There was a lot of violence. There wasn't a lot of um, drugs, but there was a lot of sexuality, too. So this was viewed as a bad thing, and of course somebody had to clamp down on it. So the CCA was organized. Now, the CCA never had any actual legal authority over the comic book publishers, but what they did was develop a seal of approval that comic books were supposed to display on their front page. And if you look at any comic books um, pre-pretty much 1980s, you'll see that they have that stamp, the seal of approval, and it says CCA right on it. Comic book publishers were not required to have it on there, but many comic book vendors would not even put comic books on the shelf if they didn't have comics with the CCA seal of approval on them. So it was just a, a tyranny that they had to live with for a long time. And the comic artists and writers developed some ways to circumvent it by using different kinds of slang or interesting drawings. Um, as you can imagine, this didn't last very long after the 70s, began. Um, at the same time that this was happening, of course, there were underground comic books being published, like Zap Comics in, in California especially, which cared not for the comic books code and published whatever the hell they felt like. Um, as time went on, it became less and less important to have this seal of approval since nobody really seemed to care about it anymore. And um, according to Wikipedia, uh, in 2001, Marvel Comics withdrew from the CCA in favor of its own rating system, and as of 2004, the CCA's stamped shape insignia is rarely seen on covers and is barely visible on those which it does appear, and DC is the only major company with some titles that still sport the CCA insignia. So it's interesting that it was such an influential piece of, I don't want to say legislation, because it wasn't legislation, but it was kind of... Um, social convention at the time that forced the artists and writers to censor themselves so that they would be able to get published. And in this particular Conan story, for example, the thing that got censored, going from the black and white Savage Sword, which was not under CCA, to the uh, regular Conan, the Barbarian comic book in color, was some nudity that was drawn. And in the context of the story, the nudity is completely reasonable and not at all meant to be sexual. It's just that the, the frost giant's daughter, because she's a god, or a goddess, is running around clothed in nearly nothing, and Conan, um, as he's struggling with her, grabs this gossamer veil that she's wearing, and then she's naked for a couple of minutes until something happens. But it's never meant to be really sexually titillating, unlike earlier, where she does have this gossamer thing, and she's presented as being really um, beautiful. And there are some um, lines in there that conveyed that pretty much Conan would rape her, because he she was tempting him too far, and, you know, of course, that's not okay, but he's Conan the Barbarian, and it would seem like the kind of thing he would do. So it was interesting that uh, that brought that back up for me, because I had really kind of forgotten about the comic books code. And so much of what you see now could never, ever have been produced under the code. And I, I wonder um, whether the code kind of um, forced artists to be more creative. You know, there's a lot of people who think that the Hayes Code in the movies um, actually forced filmmakers to be more inventive in the ways that they express things like sexuality and violence because it was implied and not directly shown. And, of course, now you can show anything in a movie and 
the result of that has been excessive sex and excessive violence to the point where people are just anesthetized to it and they don't care what they see anymore. And to make people really react, you have to go over the top. So a lot of subtlety has been lost. And I don't know if that's so true for comic books. I think in a lot of ways the CCA was a lot more repressive than the Hayes Code um, because, you know, they're comic books. They weren't movies. And what you see in a comic book, if you're talking about superheroes or zombies or anything like that, is clearly meant to be in the realm of fantasy. And it's a drawing. It's not a portrayal of a real person. I don't know how far I could carry that argument along. But uh, clearly there was a lot of restrictive... um, There was a lot of restriction through the 50s and the 60s and into the 70s because of the CCA. And as soon as it ceased to be important... The things that it was working against, like sex and violence, really blossomed in the comic books. And I have to say, the sex stuff doesn't bother me so much, except it really does bother me that all of the female superheroes are drawn with you know, gigantic tits that look like bowling balls stuck on the front of their stick-like bodies and are often naked or nearly naked, which doesn't serve the purpose of the story at all. So eh, I can do without that. And there's a lot of violence that's pretty graphic and gory that doesn't appeal to me in particular, but I don't think it's really uh, corrupting anybody's mind to see comic book violence. I think there's a difference between violence and sexuality in media. And the violence, it's not great, but I could probably live with it. The sexuality stuff, I'm not so keen on because there aren't a lot of alternatives. There aren't a lot of comic books that have uh, strong female characters who aren't portrayed as devastatingly beautiful or with perfect bodies. And the ones that do have female lead characters that aren't devastatingly beautiful and have perfect bodies are the types of comics I read and that I'd really like to talk about and tell you about so you can go out and buy them. So that's my continuation of the Conan saga. I just ordered Conan number three today, so I'll probably talk about that in the next podcast and keep you up on what's happening with Conan the supermodel. I have incidental music now. Isn't it nice? It's like NPR. That's what Ginger said. I agree with her. Before I get to talking about the next item on the list, I want to spin a plot and see if you're familiar with it and see if it's a familiar story to you. It's a story about a girl, a teenage girl, probably 16 or 17 years old, and she's in love with a boy. She's not sure if the boy loves her back. She knows the boy likes her, but she's not sure if he loves her. And she wants to be with him in the worst way possible, the way you do when you're in love and you're a teenager, and pretty much that's all that matters to you. And you go to school and you see this person, and every time you see them, you feel like your heart's breaking because they're not with you. So the girl and the boy spend some quality time together, and the boy eventually says, you know, I would love to sleep with you. I would really, really love to sleep with you. And the girl's not really sure about this, but she thinks, if I do this, maybe that'll make him fall in love with me. So she does. And it's not great, because when you're 16 and you're having sex for the first time, pretty much it's not great for anybody. It takes a while to get good at that. And after they have sex, it doesn't seem like anything's changed, and he hasn't fallen in love with her. At least he doesn't say that he's fallen in love with her. And she wonders about this, and it kind of makes it hurt even more. And then he wants to do it again, and she thinks, 
God, it really wasn't that great. Maybe I did the wrong thing, but maybe I should just keep doing it because if I do it enough, then he'll love me. And she continues to have sex with him and not really enjoy it. And he's not raping her. He's not forcing her. He's not holding her down when she's screaming. But she's ambivalent about this in a lot of ways and maybe really not doing some things that she, she really wants to do. All because she thinks that if she does this enough, he'll fall in love with her. There are about a thousand different endings to that story, depending on who you are. But I, to me, it's a story that's very real, that happens a lot to girls, because as women, as, as young women, we're taught that the way to love is sex, and that if you have sex with someone, they'll love you more. And that's pretty much the message you get in high school from boys, is that if you have sex with them, that's what you should be doing, and maybe they'll love you if you have sex with them. So I think to most people... In America, anyway, I don't know if it's true in other places, but I suspect in Western Europe it's true. That's a familiar story. It's something you've seen in books. It's something you've seen in movies. It's probably something that happened to you or happened to someone that you knew. That very scenario. So it's familiar. Now, the book I want to talk about, this comic, is another publication from Digital Manga, and it's called Desire. And the fact that it's from Digital Manga and it's called Desire should give you a clue as to what the theme is. And you know what? It's that plot I just told you about. The key difference is that they're two boys instead of a boy and a girl. And that's weird. Um, not because it's weird that they're gay, but it's weird that it's a girl's story superimposed on two boys. So obviously I'm not a boy and I don't know what it's like to be a young boy who is in love with another boy but I I just don't know if this story works realistically for boys is this what young gay boys go through um I just I don't know it's weird and in this book it's clear that the the boy who is in love with the other boy so the 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 boy who is love struck is named Toru and he's in love with his best friend of course it's his best friend who's named uh, Ryoji and of course Ryoji is beautiful and popular and athletic and can have a million girlfriends and Toru is typically for manga like this he's smaller he's more delicate looking he's even more feminine looking so he's in the girl role um, and it's not really clear what's going on with Toto's sexuality, and that was also confusing to me. Um, let me back up a little bit and tell you where this book came from. Digital Manga, it's part of their um, Yaoi series, which means it has actual sex in it, and there, do, there is sex in here, and there's a big parental advisory sticker on the front saying, hey, there's sex in here. It's not graphic sex. You don't see um, penetration. You don't even see dicks, as a matter of fact. It's all kind of discreetly hidden with clouds of steam in the shower and bedclothes on the bed, but it's clear that they're actually fucking and, and blowing well, Ryoji is blowing Toru. Um, so there's there's definitely sex happening there. And they don't talk about it um, as such. They're not talking about it the way I'm talking about it. They use blowjob and handjob, but that's about it. Um, it was written by Maki Kazumi, and it was drawn by Yukine Honami. And like most stuff from digital manga, the art is really beautiful. I like it a lot. It's... Uh, very ethereally drawn. There's not a lot of backgrounds in here, which is kind of interesting. The backgrounds are mostly white and blank. And there's um, some interesting um, 
uh, photo collage stuff going on in here too, especially with there's a lot of patterning. The boys are in school and they have to wear these plaid jackets and the, the plaid of the jackets is clearly not drawn, drawn by hand. It's a, a pattern that's been superimposed. And there's some interesting um, overlays with color that are um, just made up of colored dots and things. So I, I like it. I like the way it looks a lot. And, you know, it, it's weird in the way most manga is because you're having to read from left to right, which is odd. And you're not quite sure about some of the jokes and some of the colloquialisms like went right over my head because I totally didn't understand what they mean. And some of the sound effects are in Japanese, which was also somewhat amusing. So um, the storyline is Toro is in love with Ryoji. And he has sex with Ryoji so that Ryoji will fall in love with him. That's the plot. <laughs> there's a lot of angst. And there's quite a bit of sex that goes in there. Other stuff happens and it has an ending, which is more or less happy. It's more or less happy. But um, the sex that happens is right on that borderline. And I guess that was also fairly disturbing to me. So first of all, it's not clear that Toru is a virgin. I couldn't tell from reading this whether he was or not. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. Um, he certainly seems fine with getting a hand job from somebody else. When he actually gets fucked, it's not comfortable for him, it's not pleasant, but maybe he's done it before. I can't really tell. He doesn't seem shocked. He doesn't scream and he doesn't throw things and he doesn't sock Ryoji in the mouth when he tries to do this. He just kind of submits to it. Um, so I don't know about that. And with Ryoji, he clearly is dating girls. So is he bisexual? Is he really a closeted gay? You know, what's the deal with him? I'm not sure either. But um, the sex that happens, I guess this is why it's uncomfortable, seems very realistic in the way that girls are when they're having sex with someone because they want that person to like them or because... They feel like they have to have sex with that person. So he's not really enjoying, Toto's not really enjoying it. And he's saying things like, you know, no, I don't really want you to do that. Come on, stop, please stop. But he never gets up and does anything about it. And I'm not sure how you're supposed to interpret that. Is he really a big sub and he likes it? I don't know. Is he really just doing it because he wants Ryoji to fall in love with him? Probably. He does seem to enjoy it. I mean, he comes several times it's not like he can't get it up when this is happening so there's that part of it too which is confusing and you know I'm a pretty big fan of um, I, I don't want to throw too wide a blanket here and say all S&M but I enjoy stories that have an S&M element to it and it's pretty clear to me when people are um, submitting because they want to submit as opposed to they're being forced to submit and there's real fear going on you know I, I know that this is excuse me, a subject that's widely discussed about what that means to submit to someone when it's not it's not rape and it's not being forced and it's not doing what you don't want to do. It's what you do want to do and it's it's a scene that you're in where you're you're not submit you're not you're pretending that you're not wanting to do it. But there's not pretending in this book and I think that that's the disturbing part of it. Um, that there's no pretending. Now, the other thing that, that Ginger Mayerson mentioned to me was she was pretty shocked that this particular manga book, Desire, was on a list of recommended literature for gay and lesbian youth, which I think is kind of appalling. I mean, yeah, it's nice to see 
gay characters or at least bisexual characters in a book like this, but, you know, the message in this is not a good one. <laughs> really not the kind of thing that you want to promote as healthy reading. Maybe it's the kind of thing you want to promote as don't do this. It's not a good idea no matter how in love you are with someone. You know, don't make yourself feel any worse just because you want this person to like you more. I don't know. So, um, yeah, that's Desire. I would say if you're at all interested, it's definitely a cut above a lot of the um, uh, Shonen Ai or Yaoi manga that's out there because it is well drawn and it's it's well written and there's some interesting stuff. But it's it's fairly uncomfortable reading, I would have to say. Oh, and I also should mention that there is another character in here um, named Tadashi who looks like Harry Potter, which cracked me up. So every time I look at it, I say, oh, look, there's Harry Potter, the Japanese Harry Potter. Um, so... There you go. Uh, I would like to put some scans up of this, but I'm not sure if uh, we're allowed to do that. If you like beautiful boys, there's a lot of them in here. But I would say tread lightly when you're reading a book like this. Next up is a bunch of comic books that we've been getting for a while. I think we first ran into these guys at Comic-Con, and uh, they've been sending us stuff ever since, and boy, are we grateful. So the publisher is Forceworks Production, and this is the Babe Force series of comic books. And you may have run across these because they're pretty popular, apparently. The ones that we got at last year's Comic-Con um, was issue one of Jurassic Trailer Park, which I thought was the funniest title I had heard in a long time. So we've got issues one and two of that. Uh, there are only two issues. And then the new one, which is a one-off called American Idol, I-D-Y-L-L, Super Mega Pop Star. And it's um, a self-contained story. So the thing about the Babe Force comics is that it's part of this universe that I don't really understand, but I think is really cool and funny at the same time. And they've done a pretty amazing job of tying together a lot of different things here. So there's Babe Force Comics, and there are a bunch of them. Before the current series, there was Babe Force Back to School. And there's a new miniseries coming out in 2005 called Charge of the Serial Brigade. Very funny. There's a website the babeforce.net website, which gives you a lot of information about the characters and some previews. There's some funny uh, advice columns that are there. There's supposedly a movie. Um, I'm looking at the Forceworks website, and it says, based on the popular comic book series, this multimedia project is currently in various stages of production and seeking distribution options. And, you know, there's little stills, and there's people dressed up in the costumes. And, of course, there's merchandise. You can buy T-shirts and things like that. So the premise of Babe Force is that uh, it's our world slightly different where there are professional wrestlers gone bad. Um, there's a company not unlike Walmart, not unlike Costco, that's taken over discount merchandising and it's called Chaos Co. And Chaos Co. runs these mega stores that sell everything really, really cheaply, all under the direction of um, Dr. Chaos, or Mr. Wonderful, as we call him. Oh, sorry, Dr. Wonderful, not Mr. Wonderful. And um, Dr. Chaos is 
drawn as the real guy who I met at Comic-Con who was really nice, who gave us these comic books. And I don't know what his real name is, but he sure is cool looking. He's got an eye patch and everything. And you can even go to a website for Chaos Co. that is like a real website for a company that doesn't exist. And they put these really interesting ads on the back of all the comics that are ads for Chaos Co. products or services. The one for American Idol is for um, Chaos Co. color prints because this uh, thing about film developing at the Chaos Co. stores is part of the story. So here's the ad for it on the back. And it looks like a real ad. They did a great job with this stuff. And the other ones are relevant as well. So there's this world that's not a real world and it doesn't you don't have to know stuff about it to enjoy the stories because the stories are pretty good by themselves. Oh, there's a clown too. He doesn't talk. He's like a mime, but not nearly as annoying as a mime and he's got superpowers. And Babe Force themselves are these beautiful women who are under the con- not under the control, I should say. They work for the mysterious leader who's located on a remote island in the South Pacific, of course. And they all have names that are highly reminiscent of um Bond girls. You know, there's a uh, Dominique and uh, oh gosh, what are some of the other ones called? I would have to look. Uh, oh, one of them's named Catherine. That's like a real name, but yeah, they're they're sort of Bond girlish. But you know, they're uh, they're highly trained. I can't tell if they're aliens or not. They seem a little unfamiliar with the Western world, so maybe they're from some other dimension or maybe they're robots. I just can't really tell, but that's okay. Um, and the stuff that happens in it is wild because these wrestlers are bad guys and um, the thing to understand is that Dr. Chaos, remember Dr. Chaos I just talked about a little while ago, he runs Chaos Co. He's actually a good guy but Babe Force thinks he's a bad guy. And the reason that they think he's a bad guy is because his dad was a bad guy and his sister Helga is a bad guy. So Helga is constantly pulling evil schemes to take over the world, of course, like all evil supervillains want to do, including Plankton on Spongebob, wants to rule the world. And Dr. Chaos has no frickin' idea that this is going on, so he's constantly blundering around going, why does everybody hate me so much? And what's this stuff that my sister is doing? It's, it's, it's pretty funny. So uh, things happen in, in the Jurassic Trailer Park. The reason it's called Jurassic Trailer Park is that there are robot dinosaurs. And let me tell you, little kids really enjoy comic books about exploding robot dinosaurs. That was a big hit with some people that I know. There are a lot of jokes in each of these books about what slaves people are to places like Walmart and Costco, which are very, very good jokes, and some of them are subtle and some of them are not so subtle. In um, the American Idol comic book, there's a, a it, it's all about a show like American Idol, I-D-O-L, and how rigged it all is and how it's not really real and um, that kind of stuff. It, it's good. So they're funny, funny comic books. The art is pretty good. In the three that I have, um, the story is by Kirk Cushion and the art is by Diego Barreto. And it's it's pretty well drawn, although sometimes it's a little hard to follow the story. And sometimes the art is overly black to the point where you kind of can't tell what's going on. There's a lot of action in all of them, so it's a very action-oriented thing. There's no gore. The violence is all very cartoony violence, like, say, robot dinosaurs exploding. People don't really seem to get hurt by anything that happened. So I, I would say they're pretty much kid safe. And they're going to keep putting these out. Um, 
I wish I understood the universe a little bit better, but maybe you don't need to. But I definitely recommend them. They're fun. They have a lot of jokes in them. And, boy, they're really packed. You know, I'm holding American Idol. It costs two fifty, And, um, man, it's a lot of pages with a lot of art that's really crammed in there. And because they're independent, there's, there's no advertising in it either. So you get an awful lot of story for your $2.50. So go check them out online. Go look at forceworks.com. Go look at babeforce.net. And go look at chaos, chaosco.com. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Before I finish, I just want to put out a plug for some of the other comic podcasts that are out there. My little announcement at the beginning is uh, half serious, half joking. There's a bunch of comic podcasts out there that I listen to because they're interesting and funny. And um, if you're interested in comics, you should listen to them too. So I'll, I'll be talking about several of them over the coming shows. And I wanted to start off with talking about um, two that I really enjoy. One is called Comicology. And the podcaster is Neil Gorman and he's at comicology.net and I like Neil because he talks about specific kinds of comics that he really likes and that they tend to run along the lines of crime fiction which I think is a really really interesting genre for comic books and he seems to read a lot of this stuff I like what he has to say Um, I think he should stop apologizing in his podcast but that's just me he's a pretty cool and friendly guy the other one that I'd like to plug is the comic geek speak podcast, which is actually the very first one I ever listened to, and it's Brian and Peter and Jamie and a bunch of their friends who get together to talk about the comics that they enjoy. They're on show number 31 now, I think, which just totally amazes me, but they are hardcore comic geeks, and they know everything about DC and Marvel. They know a lot about independence as well. They talk about movies and other things connected with comics. They've had some really good interviews with some comics people as well, and I, I totally respect what they do. I'm, I'm not half the comics geek that they are, but they're great, and I encourage you to listen to it. There is a place called the um, Comic Podcast Network where you can, it's kind of an aggregator for all of the comic podcasts that are there, and um, we hope to be there one day, maybe when I have a few more shows out. But it's great, because you can go and get all your comic stuff at the same time. So I'll put up links to that, but you should definitely check out some of the other comic podcasts and get your fill of comics. And I think that's all for now. Signing off. See you next time.